Yeah, here we go. Let me ask you, are you scared of clowns? You know, some people see the clown's paint and their exaggerated clothing and colors to be funny. Something for kids to get a laugh, you know, a laugh out of. Uh, others see their unnatural colors, their exaggerated features, their kind of giant forced smiles, their hiding of the real face behind paint. To be kind of sinister or uncanny or unnerving or just downright frightening. Uh, in fact, the word coulrophobia refers to an irrational fear of clowns. Movies like It, right, with Pennywise the Clown, and books, right, it was a book first, have capitalized on this fear. Well, tonight we're going to learn about a clown that you would do well to fear. Welcome to Fangs and Folklore. We're filming in the studio here in the basement of the uh, abandoned slash haunted castle in the middle of the haunted forest. And this, the castle cats are running around causing trouble tonight, so if you hear something, and it's just them. Well, I hope it's them, because the ghosts upstairs seem kind of angry tonight. But anyway, uh, I'm your host, Matthew Miller, expert in all things paranormal and horror. I welcome you to my frightening world, and I invite you to check out my books on Amazon.com. I'm a horror-slash-horror comedy writer. Uh, the first book in my series is called Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story, and I'll flash that up on the screen for you. It's a whole series, by the way. This That's volume one of the series. It's a six-part series that's terrifying, hilarious, and super entertaining. I promise you that. Volume five is about to come out, and volume six not long after that. So one through four are already up on Amazon. So check those out and see what you think. If you notice the intro music tonight, by the way, it's not the usual creepy violin sound. So the intro song tonight, actually, was a song by a band called Five Cent Freak Show. The song's called Pogo the, Clear the Killer Clown. Pogo the Killer Clown. Five Cent Freak Show is a fantastic band. I love them. They play punk, horror punk. I guess Psychobilly could be thrown into there because they have the big upright bass and everything. If you like those genres, you're going to love Five Cent Freak Show. Plus, they're just super nice guys, really. Really good people and nice guys. I really can't recommend them enough, man. They're awesome. Uh, check them out at Bandcamp. They have a, uh, their songs there on pr probably Spotify. I know YouTube has some, Apple Music, so definitely check them out. I'd like to thanks, thank uh, Five Cent Freak Show for their kind permission to use a portion of that song on tonight's show. Fantastic. All right, so we've been doing the wine review in the beginning of every episode. Why do we do a wine review on a horror podcast? I'm not sure. I guess it's because I like wine. So tonight's uh, wine is a Globerati Tempranillo 2018. It's actually a cheap grocery store wine, and I'm not expecting too much from it. But, you know, sometimes you, you budget, you know, your budget is small. Let's give it an honest try, okay? So I'll show you the label on the screen, and then here in my the cup, the mug that is the skull of my enemy that I found here in the castle. All right, on the nose, not getting much. I'm getting dark fruit, not, not much of a nose, frankly. But it doesn't have that sulfurous overtone that a lot of cheap wine has, so that's a good sign. All right, let's take a sip. Mm. Not as bad as I would have thought, actually. I can uh, detect some dark fruit, some plum maybe, cherry, black currant. A hint of vanilla. Definitely some wood there, some oak. It is aged in oak, so I don't, I know, it's not a surprise. The tannins are pretty firm in this, so watch out if you're not big on tannins. And there's a slight bit of acidity bordering, bordering on sourness, which is, of course, like cheap wine sometimes has that. But it's not as bad as I thought it would have been. It's drinkable, I'd say. I'm not, not great, but it's drinkable, I guess. All right, so if you know anything about serial killers, then you've doubtless heard of Pogo the Clown. 
Pogo the Clown. Pogo was his stage name, and his real name was John Wayne Gacy. Uh, he was one of the most horrifying serial killers in U.S. history and had a huge kill count. Let's take a look into his childhood and background and then look into the, the kills and then the, what happened with him in his trial and then kind of analyze him a little bit. In the serial killer series, I give my uh, standard disclaimer, I oppose any and all harm of anyone, okay? So don't hurt people. Okay, John Wayne Gacy was born in Chicago, Illinois, March 17th, 1942. So uh, just when the U.S. is entering World War II, he's born. He's, uh, he had a sister, and he was the second child. His father was John Stanley Gacy, mother Marion Elaine Robinson. His father was an auto repair uh, machinist and had fought in World War I. That's interesting. His mother was a housemaker. Um, he's kind of Polish ancestry. You can, you can tell. A lot of people in Chicago have Polish ancestry. He uh, got along well with his mother, with his sister. He may have actually had two sisters. Uh, yeah, he had two sisters. He got along well with them and his mother. However, his father was a real monster. His father was a raging alcoholic who physically abused his family, the kids, and the wife, beat them up. Uh, his father also uh, constantly belittled uh, Gacy, John Wayne Gacy, called him uh, dumb and stupid, uh, compared him and said, you're not, you're not a man. Your sisters are more of a man than you. He beat him. Um, he, uh, one of Gacy's earliest memories he's told, he said was that was that of his father beating him with a belt for messing up some of the, you know, screws. He was working on a car and the John, little John kind of messed up the placement and he beat him with a belt. Um, his father called him a sissy, a mama's boy and said, you will probably grow up queer. Now, listen, this is in the forties. Okay. Back then, being homosexual was a major taboo. You didn't talk about it. It was seen as a negative thing by many people. Of course, uh, that, glad that that's changed some today, uh, you know, have more freedom and so forth. But back then, it was a taboo. Uh, so Gacy said he loved his father, but he definitely thought he would never measure up. And uh, so the father uh, was terrible to him, belittled him, toxic masculinity at its height, right? In 1949, uh, his father learned, Gacy's father learned, that he and another boy had sexually assaulted a girl. His father whipped him terribly, of course. And uh, the same year, it turns out that a friend of the family who was a man was molesting Gacy, sexually molesting Gacy. He never told his dad that, but he was sexually abused also. He was overweight, not athletic. I can relate to those. Uh, he had some kind of a heart, fail heart failure, heart problem. And he was told by the doctors to don't play sports at all. Um, he began to experience blackouts as a child and had to go to the hospital several times. It was never really diagnosed what was causing this, but there was something there. His father, of course, accused him of faking it to get out of school. Awful person. Um, in 1957, one of John Jr.'s, little John's friends, saw him... Uh, come out of the basement and start yelling at Gacy and beating him for no reason. So, you know, the, the father was abusive, just totally abusive. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm just an armchair psychiatrist. But it seems pretty clear to me that his childhood was, was far from good. It was pretty awful. One huge issue to me seems to be the belittlement and bullying and emasculation from his horrible father. In boys and young men, that can create internal, um, unexpressed rage it really can, as well as a desire to prove himself, you know, the rest of their lives, try to prove themselves to their father, and then also to kind of get back at other males. So all of that's there for sure. 
When he turned 18, Gacy became involved in politics. Um, his father didn't like it. His father bought him a car when he was 18, which is interesting, right? Uh, however, he didn't give it to Gacy. It really had the title in his name, and he used that to manipulate Gacy. And if he didn't do everything the father wanted, he would take the car away. Uh, so total asshole, manipulative controlling. Gacy drove to Las Vegas and temporarily got a job at a mortuary. So he's from Chicago. He drives across the country working in an, uh, in an embalming room, and he slept there in the embalming room. I guess the mortician said, you know, I'll put you up. You can sleep here. I'll... So he worked there for just a couple of, a few months, and uh, he constantly was watching the morticians embalming the dead bodies, so he had early contact with dead bodies. And he later said that uh, one night he was there alone. He climbed into a coffin of a dead teenage male. The body was there and started kissing and embracing and caressing the body. Uh, then he kind of got shocked at what he was doing and uh, decided he needed to go back home. So he went back to Chicago. His parents, I guess, allowed him to go back. So here we have Gacy's first known uh, uh, experience of associating lust or romance or love with a corpse, right? Uh, corpse and death. It seems that it shocked him, but I guess it didn't shock him enough, as we'll see later, to turn him away from that. He went to college, didn't do well, worked for a shoe company. Um, he became engaged to Marilyn Myers, who he met at work. And um, he joined the JCs, which is like a service, social service club, kind of like something like that, social service. You know, like go out and do things for the community. And he became like one of their top people. He was named their key man, which is a big honor. And he became really socially and community conscious. <laughs> And he, he rose to the top of, you know, his, 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 uh, his work. He had uh, another homosexual experience. Um, uh, this one was a co-worker, got him drunk, and basically, you know, raped him. Mm, he was, uh, yeah. So remember in the 60s, as I said, homosexu homosexuality was a huge taboo in the U.S. It likely would have brought around in Gacy shame, uh, feelings of shame and guilt even though that's not right. I mean, today we understand that you shouldn't be ashamed of who you are, but in those days, it was just different, a different world, you know? So um, he felt probably a lot of shame and guilt for being a homosexual or having those feelings. Uh, he uh, got married uh, to Maryland, and they moved to Iowa, to Waterloo, Iowa. He became manager of a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, KFC. Now, he, it was said that he paid attention to the, the young boys who worked at the KFC, the teenage boys, and didn't socialize much with the girls. He would have parties in his basement with all the employees, but especially the teenage males, where he would get them drunk and make advances of them on them, like, you know, propose, make propositions. And then um, when they would refuse, he would just say something like, oh, I was just kidding, you know, something like that. So he's, here he's testing out, testing out, pushing boundaries. We'll see that pushing boundaries is one major sign of a, an antisocial personality disorder person, otherwise formerly known as a psychopath. Testing boundaries are just not, not recognizing or uh, respecting boundaries. In August of 1967, he sexually assaulted a 15-year-old uh, boy who was the son of one of the JCs. Uh, he took him to his house, got him drunk, and said, uh, got him to perform oral sex or mutual oral sex. Mm, he did the same to, to several youths over time, and he actually made one of them have sex. Gacy made one of the boys have sex with his, Gacy's wife, and he, he filmed it and blackmailed him to doing what he wanted. Um, so, <clears throat> the Vor Voorhees boy tells his father, they call the police, and they arrest Gacy 
for you know sodomy and I guess a, a sexual assault on a minor. He of course denied the charges, uh, took a polygraph test, and it was inconclusive. He insisted he hadn't do, done that. Um, he said that the father of Voorhees, the boy, the father was like his political opponent in the JCs, and so he'd made up this story about him. Uh, on August 30th, 1968, he paid another boy, 18-year-old guy, a guy named Russell Schroeder, another one of the employees at KFC, to beat up Voorhees and kind of, kind of like to intimidate him. But Voorhees went right to the cops, right, and told on him. So uh, <laughs> Voorhees escaped, and he, he told on uh, Schroeder. They arrested him. Mm, he blamed Gacy, but so police did arrest Gacy again and added another charge against him. He underwent psychiatric eval evaluation, John Wayne Gacy, <clears throat> at the psychiatric hospital of the University of Iowa. They examined him and said, diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder, which then was called psychopathy or sociopathy, sociopathy right? Psychopath, soci sociopath, today antisocial. And that he would do well with, he, you know, that he would benefit from medical medicine or therapy, that probably his behavior was going to cause trouble with the law for the rest of his life. But they said he was mentally competent to stand trial, so he's not insane. Insane, by the way, is a legal term. It means mentally incompetent to stand trial. He pleaded guilty to sodomy with Voorhees, uh, not guilty to the other, uh, the other offense. Um, he was sentenced to 10 years. Okay? He ended up not serving all of it, but 10 years, and his wife divorced him for this. Um, during his prison stay, he became a model prisoner. Okay, That's interesting, isn't it? John Wayne Gacy, a model prisoner. He became the head cook at the place. And also, there was a, a JC club in prison. A lot of prisons have these clubs to help inmates, you know, maybe do something with their time. And he uh, increased his membership. He became the, the leader of it. And um, he really did well in prison. I mean, as well as you can do in prison. He was denied parole once. And uh, in prison, he compete and completed high school courses and got his diploma, a high school diploma. He never had finished high school. Christmas 1969, John Wayne Gacy's father died from alcoholism. Uh, it's said that when he was told about this, he fell to the floor and sobbing, you know, John Wayne Gacy. He was not allowed to go to the funeral for compassionate reasons. Okay, so he only served 18 months of his 10-year sentence, right, 18 months. So um, he got probation, except he had to move back to Chicago and live with his mother. Those are the terms of probation with a 10 p.m. curfew. Okay, um, he uh, insisted and swore he would never go back to jail. However, February 12, 1971, he is charged with sexually assaulting a teenage boy, lured him from a Greyhound station, drove him back to his home, got him drunk. This is the MO, right? And tried to have sex with him. The boy refused and fled. Um, however, in Iowa, the patrol board didn't hear about this offense, and, it, and he got his you know, probation. It didn't affect him. Uh, he, his, his record, criminal record was sealed and he gets basically has a new start, right? He finally bought a house, uh, near the village of Norwich, which is, uh, part of greater Chicago. He bought a house and that's the house that we know as the Gacy murder house, right? He was, um, he became active in his local community. Like always, he got along well with his neighbors he uh, he hosted parties, you know. Uh, he met, became friends with politicians, basically ingratiated himself with the community, with the leaders of the community, and everyone thought he was a great guy, you know. Um, 
he became engaged a second time to Carol Hoff. He knew her from high school. And they got married, and she had two daughters from a previous marriage. And from what everyone says, uh, Gacy was a, a good father to them, which is really weird, right? Remember Ted Bundy from last time was actually a, a good stepdad, <laughs> and Gacy apparently was a good stepdad too. Uh, however, um, he told his wife that he was bisexual and that he would never have sex with her. And he would start hanging out outside of the house at night and get home early in the morning, like early, early, like three and four in the morning. And what he was doing was taking teenage boys into his garage. Um, so the wife found out and he said, it's none of your business. They got in a big argument and she, she said, I'm going to divorce you. And she did. So twice divorced. Okay, Gacy started a construction contracting business, and it became really profitable, okay? Really, did really well. So he's just keeping this in mind. Successful businessman, pillar of the community. Everyone thinks he's a great guy, a family guy. You know, everyone thinks he's great. Now, here is where things take a turn for the worse. He was, um, he, he became a clown, okay? Uh, you know, a clown for children's parties. So he joins this, this local clown club, creates his persona called Pogo the Clown. Pogo the Clown. He had an, another persona called Patches, but we know him most from Pogo, who is the comic clown, a happy clown. And he would do all sorts of charity work and you know, volunteer his clown services. He, he later said that being a clown allowed him to, quote, regress into childhood, close quote. And I can't help but think that, you know, regress into childhood... Um, he missed a good part. Gacy missed a part of a good childhood. He had he didn't have a good childhood. He missed a lot of childhood that that quote unquote normal children have. He never really emotionally matured past his teenage years because that's when horrible things started happening. So he not only wanted to go back, you see, to his childhood and kind of relive it, but he also related to teenagers on an emotional level. You know, he liked them because he never emotionally, psychologically progressed beyond being a teenager, basically. So his in construction business, he uh, employed a lot of teenage boys, as you might imagine. He, uh, boy, those cicadas outside are super loud. I don't know if you can hear that, but they're killing me here. Um, Gacy uh, had a de so he takes he okay, starts bringing boys to his house. He sexually assaults them, gets them drunk. All right. Now, here is where his killing streak begins. Okay, he ended up killing thirty three at least thirty three young men and boys. And um, what he would do was pick them up from the bus station or invite them over from knowing them for construction business. He would also sometimes impersonate a policeman. He had, a, he had a spotlights on a black car, like it looks like a cop car, and he had a fake sheriff's badge. So just like Bundy, remember Ted Bundy pretended to be a cop too? Gacy did that, and, he, and it worked sometimes. All right, Gacy's M.O. He would, as we said, take a youth, a young boy home, teenage boy to his house. He'd get him drunk or high drugs if he had them. He'd gain his trust somehow, that, you know, and then he would say that he wanted to show them a magic trick and in that manner managed to put handcuffs on them. Okay, so, man, once the handcuffs are on, you know, it's all over for the boy. That's it. So he would show them a magic trick saying he's a clown, show them his clown suit. You know, I'm going to do a trick. Put on these handcuffs. They did it, and uh, it was all over, right? He would basically... Um, torture them, sit on their chest. Um, he would, uh, uh, he called this the handcuff trick. He would then rape them. He, uh, he would sit on their chest and force the victim to perform fellatio on him. Uh, he would burn them with cigars. 
He would ride them around like a horse. He would insert objects into their anus. And um, he sometimes put their uh, ankles in like a, a handcuffs also. He would mock them while they were being tortured. He enjoyed it. And some sometimes he would take the victims. This is sick. He would dunk their head in the bathtub full of water until they passed out or died, then bring them up and revive them again and again. Uh, many of them begged, he said, to die. He said, please let me die. And he said, you'll die when I tell you you will die. And he would sometimes say, all right, this is the last trick. He would put a rope around their neck and take a hammer, uh, you know, twist the hammer handle on the back so it got tighter and tighter, and uh, they would die. He said sometimes they would last for one or two hours, you know, strangling them. I've always heard it's really hard to strangle a person. We think that, you know, like in the movies, just a few seconds later, they're gone. Uh, I've read that it's actually hard. It takes a really long time. I don't want to, I don't want to know, but yeah. So he murdered these boys between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Uh, all the time. <clears throat> so <laughs> once, once he killed them, he has a dead body problem, right? So what does he do? Well, he puts them under his bed or closet for a while, temporarily. Then he would dig in his crawl space and then he would dig a grave and bury them in his crawl space under his house. Then he would pour quicklime in to kind of decompose them. Um, he embalmed some of them before he buried them. Uh, so he has a house that's filling up with corpses, okay? A house of horrors, a murder house. He, uh, like I said, he killed at least 33 victims. I obviously don't have time to talk about all of them, but let's just talk about a couple of them. Uh, one of them... Um, was a 16-year-old boy named Timothy Jack McCoy, Timmy McCoy. Uh, he got him from a Greyhound bus station, and basically G Gacy was nice to him. He took him on a tour of Chicago, took him home, and he said, you can stay here for the night, no problem. I'll feed you. You know, uh, I'll take you back in the morning to catch your bus. The guy, unfortunately, trusted him. So the next uh, morning, Gacy wakes up. Here's the boy standing over Gacy's bed with a kitchen knife in his hand. Gacy freaks out. He uh, grabs a knife from the boy, bangs his head against the wall, and basically beats him up. And then uh, says, I'll kill you! He wrestled him to the floor and then uh, stabbed him in the chest while he sat on his stomach. Turns out the boy was just going to make, <laughs> make him breakfast. That's why he had a knife in his hand. He was making eggs and bacon in the morning in the kitchen to thank Gacy for letting him stay there. Gacy misinterpreted it as an attack and killed the boy. I buried him in the crawl space. Um... Yeah, so uh, he also said, as he stabbed McCoy, he listened to the, quote, gurgulations, you know, the gargling, uh, the gasping for air, and he had a huge orgasm, all right? So he said, quote, that's when I realized that death was the ultimate thrill, close quote. That one's significant. I chose that one because it's, uh, Gacy cements the connection between murder and sexual pleasure, sexual satisfaction, in fact, orgasm. When he had climbed into the coffin with the boy that, that time in the mortuary, the seeds were planted. But here, it's confirmed in his mind. Murder equals sexual satisfaction. And once a killer reaches this stage, there's really no turning back. Okay, there's really no turning back. Sex is a biological urge, right? Like eating, drinking, breathing. But when it's associated with something like this, killing, well, it's, it's hard for them to stop. They, they never do. Okay, his business is expanding. He's getting money. He's becoming rich, becoming a pillar of the community. Uh, he would go cruising around and to pick up boys. He called it his cruising phase. And um, the neighbors would hear shouts and screams from Gacy's house early in the morning. They see lights turning on and off. I guess they never call the police. <laughs> I don't know. They, they, 
might have suspected he had boys over there, but nothing came much of that at that time. Um, he uh, Another victim was 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, who was the son of a Chicago police sergeant. And uh, the boy actually lived four blocks from Gacy, so he's a neighbor. He did the same thing to him, brought him over, got him drunk, handcuffed him, murdered him, choked him, um, uh, had an orgasm, and then buried him in the crawl space. Now, this murder demonstrates that Gacy had reached the stage that just about all serial killers uh, reach, which is brazen confidence. By killing the son of a police sergeant and a neighbor who probably knew him, uh, he's being overly bold, right? He's being brazen. He's overly confident. Most serial killers reach this point, and once they do, it marks the beginning of the end in terms of them getting caught. Bundy did the same thing. Uh, you know, so did the other two, uh, Albert Fish and um, Joachim Kroll, whom we've talked about. All right. He abducted, on December 30th, abducted a 19-year-old boy named Robert Donnelly from the, from the, gun sta- uh, the bus station sorry, with a gun. Uh, again, that's awfully bold. He drove him to his home, raped him, tortured him. Here's one of the poor boys who he repeatedly dunk in the water in the bathtub until he just about drowned and revived him over and over. He taunted him while he was killing him. He said something like, quote, aren't we playing fun games tonight? Close quote. Um, Donnelly, this boy, believe it or not, got away. He, he survived because Gacy basically said, OK, we're done. Drove him back to uh, where he'd got him um, and said, if you tell the police, they're not even going to believe you. So this this is weird to me. Many, 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 many serial killers end up letting some victims go on purpose. I think of, uh, uh, I mean, Bundy did it, right? Why do they do this? Do they feel like a, do they feel a pang of guilt or shame? Or can they even feel that? Do they like that victim as a person, maybe? Are they just so confident that they don't care? Or are they secretly desiring to be caught? Some people believe that theory. Is it for practical reasons? Nowhere to dump the body? I don't know. But it's beyond bold and cocky. <laughs> he let him go uh, voluntarily. Donnelly called the police. They questioned Gacy, but he said that he and the boy had a consensual relationship. Police believed him. Didn't file any charges. All right. Well, by 1978, Gacy's crawl space is filled chock full of bodies. He, um, <laughs> he later would tell police he was going to start storing them in the attic, but he had a, uh, you know, was worried about leakage. Ugh, God, the thought of that. So what he started to do is dump his victims off the bridge, uh, in the De Plain River on I-55, he threw them into the river. That's how he started disposing of them. All right, now, he, um, December 11, 1978, he went to this pharmacy talking with this, the owner, and um, a boy heard that he was going to hire teenage boys for uh, five bucks an hour, which at that time was good. And so, uh, basically, uh, this boy, you know, agrees to work for him. He takes him home murders him, and uh, basically he had told the boys, or anything that you wouldn't do for the right price, he's thinking gay sex. The boy said, well, I'll work really hard, whatever, and Gacy said, no, you know what I mean, huh? Uh, the boy um, said no, so he again tricks him into wearing handcuffs and says to the boy, quote, I'm going to rape you and you can't do anything about it. The boy was crying. Mm, the boy goes missing, uh, they file a missing persons report. Now, the mother of the boy uh, uh, says it was Gacy. She somehow knew who, where he was going for this job interview. 
The police get a search warrant for Gacy's house, uh, worrying that he had the boy as a hostage. Listen to what they found, okay, in Gacy's house. Several police badges, a six millimeter uh, pistol, um, a syringe, a hypodermic needle inside a cabinet, handcuffs, books on homosexuality and pederasty, i.e. Uh, underage boy, boys, um, pornographic films, capsules of amyl nitrite, and a big dildo, a big uh, piece of wood with two holes at each end, which is where he would put their legs, you know, uh, cuff their legs to this to, to incapacitate them, bottles of Valium, atropine, several driver's licenses of young boys, uh, and a, a hood, a, a, a hoodie that was too small for Gacy, the size of a teenage boy. They find also uh, a high school ring of a boy and a photo of the pharmacy where he abducted the boy, as well as a piece of rope. But they don't arrest him on the spot. <laughs> they don't arrest him. What they do is put him under surveillance. Now, he, being a psychopath, antisocial, befriends, well, superficially befriends the, the cops surveying him, invites them in, cooks them dinner. So he's getting into their good graces. I'm not laughing at that. It's just I can't believe that how, how brazen he was. He starts to uh, resent the surveillance, so he decides he's going to file a lawsuit against the police for harassing him. $750,000 lawsuit. Mm, they get a second search warrant, and uh, they have a hearing, and they get the warrant. So um, one of the cops starts talking to Gacy, kind of to distract him. The other goes into his bedroom and tries to um, see what he could find. And he goes to the bathroom, flushes the toilet, and coming from a heating duct, he smells the, the clear smell of decaying human flesh. If you've ever smelled the smell of death, you know what it is. It's a sour, acrid, acrid, like rancid, cheesy smell. Not to be gross, but um, I mean, it's just like an animal if you ever smelled a, a decomposing animal. So he smells that, and he says, hmm, you know, he has a suspicion now. All right. Gacy knows that the, the walls are closing in. So he goes to his lawyer's office uh, one evening and says, I need a drink. The lawyer gives him whiskey. He starts getting drunk and basically confesses to the lawyer that uh, he killed boys. Uh, he said, quote, I've been the judge, jury, and executioner of many, many people, uh, close quote, and now he wanted to die as well. He confessed that he buried the victims in his crawl space. He con con uh, confessed that he threw some in the river. He told them all about the rope trick, um, and then he fell asleep during the confession. So the lawyers, you know, they call the police. Uh, they get a search warrant. They go to Gacy's house. He had flooded the crawl space and then drained it, I guess, to get rid of evidence somehow. But uh, they go in the crawl space. They start digging, and they find rotting flesh and a human arm bone. All right, so now, you know, it's over for Gacy. One of the uh, people digging said, I think this place is full of kids. They find a kneecap and so forth. They find more bones. Um, on December 22nd, in front of his lawyers, Gacy formally confessed he, a written statement to, a pro to killing about 30 uh, young males, he said, all of whom had entered his house willingly, which may have been true. Well, he did kidnap them from the bus station, so I guess it's not true. Most of them, though, did go to his house willingly, thinking they were going to get a job or party or something like that. Brought to trial February 6, 1980, charged with 33 murders, and he is his defense is that he's insane, that he had multiple personality disorder. Psychiatrists evaluated him, and some of them agreed. They said he's, uh, he's, um, he does have multiple personality disorders. He said his personalities were four, 
One, the hardworking, civic-minded contractor. Two, the clown. Three, the active politician. And four, a policeman named Jack Hanley. And he called this policeman Bad Jack. He uh, claimed that Jack was the one doing the crimes and not him. His lawyers uh, did a plea of insanity, but it wasn't, it didn't work. He was found uh, guilty. The jury deliberated less than two hours. They found him guilty of all 33 charges of murder, as well as sexual assault with a child. Um, it's the most murders at that time that anyone in the U.S. had been convicted of. He was sentenced to a uh, death penalty for each murder. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, he's uh, going to be executed June 2nd, 1980. But he was on death row, right? He filed several appeals. It was not until 1994, May 9th, that he was uh, taken to be executed. He was allowed one last meal, uh, a picnic on the prison grounds with his family. Uh, you know, not he was divorced, but I guess his, his biological family. His last meal, that's, this, this is interesting, he ordered a bucket of KFC, a dozen fried shrimp, french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. Wondering why he worried about the diet part. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh about that, but my God. Diet Coke, okay. He has a prayer with a priest. He's taken to the um, execution chamber for a lethal injection. But they did it wrong, and the chemicals kind of clogged the tube. They had to redo it, and apparently that caused him some pain. Um, but one of the uh, prosecutors at the trial said he got a much easier death than any of his victims. So he's executed and uh, painfully. Um, he was a psychopath, and uh, his final statement to his lawyer before his execution said that killing me is not going to make up for the loss of others. The state is murdering me. Supposedly, his final words before he was executed was, kiss my ass. That's debatable, but some sources say it was, kiss my ass. In 1979, the house, the murder house, was demolished, and there's a new house there now. I personally would not want to live in that new house, knowing what happened there, but some people do. All right. Uh, interesting that Gacy claimed he didn't act alone. He said there were others who helped him uh, to murder. And... Several uh, criminal defense attorneys and investigators said that it's likely that he did have accomplices, said there's overwhelming evidence. In fact, um, a, uh, one of the policemen trailing him had heard, overheard him talking to some young boys. He had said, you'd better not let me down, you fuckers. You owe it to me. And one of the young boys said, and what, buried like the other five? So maybe he had accomplices. In prison, maybe you've seen these. He starts to paint and draw. All sorts of stuff. Uh, many of clowns, even Pogo, the killer clown. Disney. Um, he said he did it to bring joy to people's lives. Well, okay. Uh, the painting have sold for up to $20,000, but the members of his family have burned a lot of them too. Okay, let's quickly watch a couple of little videos and make some brief points. So this is video number one. It's an interview with Gacy. Take a look. I, I have a lot of things that I've forgotten that I can't remember. For instance, I can go back... To my childhood and stuff and i still remember that but yet you can i can go into the 70s and there are a lot of things i can't remember the same thing with the victims i've looked at all of i don't know if you notice here we got pictures of every one of the victims here and believe it or not for the last 12 years i've studied these photos of the victims and there is no uh we, we have a shot of all of the victims together here and uh when you look over at the, the photos, I have no recollection of any of them. Never met them. And we've gone over this more than once. They're just names and faces. And when you, when you look at them, uh, the thing of it is, we took it a step further. We went into their backgrounds. I wanted to know where they were at 
what schools they attended, who they hung out with, and what kind of activities they were into. And that's what we dug up on each one of the victims. But still, there is no association. None of them never worked for me. None of them, they never went to any places that I ever hung around because I didn't hang, hang around that many places unless you were involved in politics or, or you, if you were involved in clowning. All right. Note the absolute denial. Even Ted Bundy admitted his crimes, although he didn't feel sorry for him. Gacy outright denies his kills. So I don't know any of these victims. He seems to be going for his multiple personality defense again, right? He didn't remember anything. I imagine that deep down, some part of him must know that he's a monster. Maybe he just doesn't want to admit it to himself or to others. At this point, what's the harm in admitting it? He's already sentenced to death, right? But he still denies it. Okay, let's watch uh, video number two. People don't want to know the truth and the, and the honesty of it. If they want to be convinced or brainwashed into what they believe, then fine, then go ahead and kill me. But vengeance is mine, say it the Lord, because you will have executed somebody that didn't commit the crime. Those are the words of John Wayne Gacy, pleading innocence from death row at Menard State Penitentiary 13 years after being convicted of his crimes, the most notorious serial killer of our time. When they paint the image that I was this monster who, who picked up like these altar boys along the street and swatted them like flies, I said, this is ludicrous. Father. Loving and caring. Uh, I've always uh, looked after my children, even now. All right, so more denial and the claim that he was a great loving father. <clears throat> As I said before, some serial killers like Bundy actually ended up being good parents. He may have been a good father. I mean, good, quote unquote, right? Uh, but it's not the real persona. It's a fake life that they're leading, a double life. Let's do some armchair psychoanalysis. He bears the traits of classic antisocial personality disorder. On the outside, he's charming, a pillar of the community, a family man, civic-minded, successful businessman. He employs young men at good pay. Yet beneath the surface is a rageful monster, right? A murderer who takes pleasure in torture and rape, who lives in a house of horrors stacked with the bodies of his victims. If he did work with partners in killing uh, accomplices, then he was charismatic enough on the outside to convince them to kill with him, right? To me, much of it goes back to the way his father treated him. Constant humiliation, beating, belittlement, criticizing his masculinity, not teaching him healthy masculinity, but toxic mas masculinity at its, at its greatest. You know, if you, I don't have kids, but if you do, keep that in mind. You know, mistreatment when kids are young can turn them into monsters when they grow up. I know, I know a lot of people had bad childhoods and don't kill, obviously. I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying, man, <laughs> watch how you treat your kids. I still don't understand why he voluntarily confessed, but I have a theory. <clears throat> if he was truly antisocial, like a psychopath, I think he was, then he didn't feel guilt. Antisocials cannot differentiate between guilt, which is knowing you did wrong, feeling bad about it, and shame, getting caught. Okay, I had a psychiatrist uh, guy I used to know who told me that. He said um, that psychopaths don't can't give you the definition of guilt and shame. They think they're the same thing. Okay, so. Gacy would not have felt guilt. So if anything, why is he confessing? I have an idea. I think he knew he was close to getting caught. He probably certainly knew that. By showing up at the lawyer's office and confessing and acting racked with guilt, he was setting up a defense, probably his multiple personality defense. You see, antisocials are always thinking about how they can manipulate other people, always planning several steps ahead to get out of consequences of their actions and to get what they want. It's what they specialize in. They don't feel empathy. They have some emo they feel some emotions, but they don't feel empathy or guilt or, you know, pity and that kind of thing. 
So uh, they push boundaries and they manipulate. They're master manipulators. I think that's why he confessed personally. He knew that he was going to get caught. So it was either wait to get caught or confess and take control of the narrative. Okay, Psychopaths love to have control. By confessing first, he has control of the narrative now. This brings up again the death penalty question that I've examined in, uh, in, the, in some other episodes. I am personally against the death penalty in most cases for different reasons. First, we know that we have executed innocent people before. We know it. They've been exonerated by DNA. And to me, even one innocent person executed is not worth a million guilty executed. Second, it's not a deterrent. Killers like Gacy are going to kill no matter the consequences. They don't care about the consequences. They think they're going to talk their way out of it. They don't think they're going to get caught. Third, I look at it more like revenge than for a practical purpose. I mean, we have this idea of justice, but I, I think it's revenge. Killers need to be removed from society, yes, 100%. But what's the point in killing them? What does it accomplish? Some would say, well, it's closure for the family. Okay, I can understand that. Honestly, if someone killed someone I loved, I might change how I feel. I'm just being honest about that. It's always different when it's personal, you know, and just, who knows? I mean, I hope that never happens, but... I might change how I felt if it happened to me, just, just to be honest about that. Um, Gacy shows just how easy it seems to be to kill and to get away with it, doesn't he? By charming society, working with kids, the clown, you know, financially successful, a small businessman, a family man, he charmed society. And he was trusted more than someone else would have been. Uh, and because of that, the police wrongly gave him lots of leeway. This was not equal justice under the law. If he had been, you know, a, a, probably a minority or a drug addict or something, the police would have honed in on him first. He lived in a house stuffed with rotting corpses. <laughs> you understand this? He brazenly got young men off the street, took them home, and murdered them. He even let one go and got away with it. I have to say it, but it was really, really easy for Gacy to kill for all those years. And if he had stopped, he may have gotten away with it forever. I find it disturbing just how easy it is for for some of these killers to get away with it for so long. Uh, that same psychiatrist friend I had also told me that the majority of criminals get away with their crimes or never caught. How many killers are out there right now? Mm, I, don't, I don't know. I don't want to think about it. Finally, the Pogo the Clown persona. What a metaphor for Gacy, right? He wore a mask as a clown, but he also wore a mask as a member of society. People saw him as bright and colorful, happy, right, and generous and giving, a bringer of joy, like the clown mask. But what they were really seeing was the thin mask of paint that he wore, literally and figuratively. Beneath that mask was a brutal and vicious killer. Pogo the Clown, the mask. I'd love to hear your thoughts on John Wayne Gacy, Pogo the Killer Clown. If you're watching this on YouTube, please comment and like and subscribe. If not, you can email me. My email is matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. I'll flash that on the screen, matthew.miller.writer at gmail.com. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think about John Wayne Gacy. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And I say enjoyed, not because I think what he did was good, but just because it's so interesting and such a horrifying thought. The clown who kills. The clown who kills. And if you have a phobia of clowns, boy, can't imagine that you sleep well at night with this guy. All right, well, if you'll excuse me now, I have to go uh, perform at a, uh, at a kid's party. <clears throat> Sleep well, if you can. <laughs>